It's not that Marxism is not around, but that kind of conversation which cultural studies conducted with against some aspects of around the questions expanding a Marxist tradition of critical thinking, that is absent and that is a real weakness. I think important gains were made which enable us to understand culture, cultural discourse, the place, the relationship of the ideological. So I think a lot of ground was covered, kind of conceptual ground was covered, which could go to enrich the position, provided the basic conversation was re-engaged. But if it's not re-engaged, then that interim, interim period, you know, cultural studies lost its way and won't, won't find it again. Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. You just heard the voice of the late Stuart Hall, with an assessment of the status of Marxism in cultural studies he gave to the academic Sut Jali in 2012. In this edition of Pod Academy, I speak to Steve Edwards, Professor of History of Art at the Open University, about the development of culture studies in Britain out of particular Marxist traditions, and if, more recently, Marxism has been able to reassert its relevance. I began by asking what Marx and Engels themselves had to say about cultural phenomena. It's uh, patchy to start with. I mean, it, I think one of the there are two things to say about that is that you know that they were very educated men of their time, you know, with very extensive literary tastes in the high culture of particularly Europe. Very well read. I don't think that there's any point where they're particularly kind of you know there's no extensive development of the ideas in Marx and Engels. Marx did originally plan to write an aesthetic. He never did so. He, he wrote poetry as a young man. Engels wrote, you know, some kind of... There are occasional pieces, largely on literature. But I think beyond that, what's important about what they, why they did is to recognise that in some senses, Marxism is a profoundly aesthetic philosophy, that so many of its categories and its central categories come from thinking about art and aesthetics, the organisation of sensibility. So the whole debate, for instance, on the, the alienation of labour, the debate about fetishism, the whole sense about a kind of future society which will overcome the divisions between mental and manual, between uh, that will heal the rifts of class or whatever. These are fundamentally aesthetic categories. So I think in, in more ways than just thinking about what they explicitly wrote about art or literature, what's most important to think about is the sense to which the discussions and thinking, particularly in German idealist philosophy, about art entered fundamentally into shaping their view of the world. Marx and Engels can be seen as part of a tradition of social criticism that was taking place in the 19th century that encompassed thinkers and writers on aestheticism such as Ruskin, Carlyle, Arnold and Dickens. At times intensely conservative, romantic in sensibility and anti-modern, this aesthetic critique of capitalism also found a more progressive voice in William Morris. There's a separate trajectory there, which is that there's a kind of tradition of British social criticism that's very centred on art in the 19th century. One might think about Ruskin, about Carlyle, about Dickens and Arnold. These are figures that, are, that fundamentally reject capitalism. 
They reject the new kind of modernity. By and large, they're very conservative thinkers, very anti-democratic. Um, and, and in Ruskin and Carlyle, it, Carlyle in particular has some quite unpleasant aspects of around questions of race and so forth in, in his thinking. One of the things that, so, but what you get fundamentally is this rejection of the new industrial society and the devastation and destruction of the older social relationships in their uh, conception. In Ruskin, that's very centrally about work and art. And so one of the things that becomes very important about that, that we, probably the best way to characterize it is, is as romantic anti-capitalism, a kind of drawing on, the, on romantic sensibility and the romantic attitude to the developing new society. They developed a kind of critique of that society, of its industrialization, of its ugliness, of its destruction of nature, of the effects that it was having on working people, on beauty, you know, that they found that society fundamentally ugly. The big difference with Morris is that Morris came from a different political formation while sharing their aesthetic critique of capitalism. So Morris actually came out of liberalism, and in particular, a certain kind of anti-imperialist liberalism, which made him very different from them. What Morris did, I think, was turn that tradition of romantic anti-capitalism into a kind of socialist form. So in many ways, his, his writings on art, much of what he did himself as a practicing uh, craftsman, designer, and so forth, is actually very much inspired by that Ruskinian sense of, this, uh, of the aesthetics of labor, of a kind of, you know, of a sense of craft and beauty and dedication to work. But he shifted that fundamentally in a different political dimension into, a, into an aspect of, um, of socialism. And, you know, when he was reading Marx, and he struggled with capital. We know he, we know he read it and struggled through it. He was also influenced by, by some aspects of anarchism. But the founding of the Socialist League, and for 10 years that Morris was fundamentally active as a kind of organizer. So that there's a close penetration there, close interlinkage in Morris's thought between um, his socialism and a kind of aesthetic critique of capitalism, of a rejection of what it's doing to both nature and to labour. Perhaps one of the absolute central figures in terms of the history of 20th century Marxism is the Sardinian Antonio Gramsci. It's his thinking on ideology and hegemony that's had the most significant bearing on cultural studies. It's important to remember, first of all, that the prison notebooks are only translated into English in 71. One of the things that I think that's really important about that, that work is the recognition that one has to think beyond the dimensions of economics and politics and to think about a political constitution around the struggle in popular culture itself. And particularly what he calls hegemony, the dominance of, of one social group's ideas over those of another, to think about that as, as something that takes place inside various cultural forms, but also principally for him, the party. Um, the second dimension to that, I think, which is really important, is that before Gramsci, people tended to think about ideology as, as ideas, as a series of ideas that might be contested, that might adhere to one group or another, that were somehow in some opposition, that the ruling ideas were subjugating you know, these kind of oppositional groups. Um, what Gramsci begins to do is to develop the idea that, that rather than focusing on ideas, one should actually pay attention to the institutions and the agents of that hegemony 
to think about how um, hegemony is produced in specific institutions and to think about a sociology of the intellectuals. Who is it that's doing this work? And to focus not so much on the ideas themselves, but on their production and on the sites of their production. So you get a shift with Gramsci to begin to look at a whole series of different forms, popular literature, an interest in detective stories, an interest in language, different kinds of aspects of, of the history of the social development of Italy or whatever. So what you're finding there, I think, is a focus particularly on the ways in which ideas come to be shaped and formed, and that rather than seeing these as somehow ideas that generate instinctively out of particular classes, he's looking at the way in which that those ideas can be contested, can be fought over, and that you know, the, a, a working-class hegemony can be built. In Britain, cultural studies itself really came into being with the foundation of the Birmingham Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies in the early 1960s. The centre was founded by Richard Hoggart, who wanted the initiative to build on the work of his book The Uses of Literacy, which explored working-class popular culture. Hoggart's first appointee at the Birmingham School was the new left Stuart Hall, who would go on to be the centre's director. The first thing to say about cultural studies as it was formed in Birmingham, where it was called the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, is that cultural studies isn't the same as the study of culture. There are lots of disciplines that study culture. Um, literary studies, art history, musicology, anthropology, and so forth. The, the, you know, the, the, there's a whole range of disciplinary bases for that. So I think the first thing to say is that cultural studies isn't the same as the study of culture. I think the key difference with the formation of cultural studies was a way in, in which a certain social history and literary studies made a shift in, into evaluating popular cultural form. So you, I think in terms of the formation of what goes on in Birmingham, there are usually, I think we, we need to see at least three strands. The first is the shift that takes place after the Second World War with the increasing commodification of everyday life. So the first thing we need to see there is that the increasing impact of capitalism on aspects of life that previously hadn't been drawn under that, or to a lesser extent had been drawn under, under the direct reproductive influence of capitalism. And that involves, you know, I mean, people talk about consumerism, that's one way of describing this, but the generation also of popular entertainment, of, of mass entertainment that's already commodified and capitalised at the outset. So that's the first aspect. The second, I think, is what people have described as the shift within certain British Marxism to culturalist thinking. Figures like the historian E.P. E. Thompson, Raymond Williams in literary criticism, and we have to say that they denied this term. They denied that they were culturalists. But nevertheless, that there's a shift in emphasis away from just thinking about class in terms of economics and politics to thinking about the ways in which class uh, is lived, is a lived experience that takes place inside aspects of culture and, and, um, and cultural form. So that's certainly the second aspect. And, and many of those people who formed the center 
came out of that trajectory slightly differently. Richard Hoggart, who um, wrote The Uses of Literacy, which was about class, drawing on his own experience of growing up in working-class Yorkshire, and the kind of impact of popular culture on that community of class. Hoggart was always a slightly different figure. In many ways, was anti-Marxist. He was a kind of classic Labourite in many ways, I think. And he's the founder of, of the um, of the centre. He employed Stuart Hall, who took over when Hoggart didn't come back from um, a secondment to UNESCO. And Hall is a is a kind of very interesting figure who himself, you know, is part of that shift in terms of the British left, came to Britain on a Rhodes Scholarship from Jamaica, and right from a very early period is involved in the formations of the new left. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about John Oconfra's recent film of, or two films, in fact, it exists in two forms of Stuart Hall, is to see just how present he is in the media right from the 50s. It, both as a commentator on culture, but also as a commentator on black experience in Britain. That Hall is a very prominent figure in the shaping of the British left, in bringing together a kind of literary attention with um, Marxist theory and um, a black experience. And Hall is articulating those things right, right from the outset, I think. So, you know, one of the things that tends to happen is, is that people tend to overly periodize this as though the kind of attention to race comes somehow much further down the line. I think what we can say is that attention to race and ethnicity, which begin with things like policing the, the crisis in, in terms of the center, of course, there's a lot of black activist work where, where you know, there's things going on elsewhere. But although that, that becomes much more prominent in the work of the center from the mid-70s, mid Hall is already, I think, from a much earlier point dealing with those kinds of issues. They, they kind of rise and fall within his work. So that, that's a different kind of aspect of that work. But to go back to the question of culturalism, we see, I think, for instance, in Raymond Williams's work, Culture and Society, and then his book on printing, The Long Revolution, that Williams is attending to the ways in which there's a kind of long tradition of cultural criticism in Britain. The cult, I'm thinking of the book Culture and Society, which I think is a really important book. Um, has many problems, but, uh, but which is really attentive to that dimension of romantic anti-capitalism in the 19th century, to thinking about those oppositions to, to the emergent industrial capitalist society that take place in this long tradition of cultural critique. We've mentioned Ruskin, Carlyle, Arnold, Dickens, you know, there's a whole range of, of these figures that he studies and studies carefully in that book through to Morris and Marx. So you, you're beginning to get, I think, here, in this configuration, a kind of attention to culture and ideology. That must, that's the second dimension to, to what emerges there. The third, I think, we've, again, we've already touched on, and that's the work of, of translation that begins to take place in the New Left through New Left Review centrally. So it's very important to remember, and it, it's, it's somehow difficult for our generation to think back to this moment, that the Grundrisse doesn't appear in English until 1973, Marx's Grundrisse. That a book like Lukács' History and Class Consciousness appears in English in its full edition first in 71. Gramsci Prison Notebooks appears in 71. The debates 
that are published together in Aesthetics and Politics appear as late as 77. And then you have work like Benjamin, Althusser, slightly later Lefebvre being translated. So one of the things that's happening there is that there's a breaking out of an attention simply to the kind of British tradition and an opening out of Marxism to a much wider in set of intellectual influences from Latin America, from Europe, and so forth. So you're getting a, a third dimension there. And I think one of the things that happens with the Birmingham Center is that those three aspects are coming together in their work. It's also directly applied to an intervention into the current situation, to thinking about what's going on in their world then, to what's shaping the, the political sense, to use culture as a way of thinking and contesting um, the, the things at the moment. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, comment right at the end of an essay from 1981 by Stuart Hall called Notes on Deconstructing the Popular. He's asking, what is the popular? What do we mean by popular culture? And he says at the end of that essay that popular culture has to be a, a site for the struggle for hegemony. That's what popular culture is for him. For him. And he concludes this essay with, with, with just a couple of lines which I've always liked. He said, popular culture, it's one of the places where socialism might be constituted. That's why popular culture matters. Otherwise, to tell the truth, I don't give a damn about it. And what I like about that is that, you know, someone like Hall has always been identified with this study of popular culture. But what was really important about the work they were doing there is that it was first and foremost a political intervention. It was about thinking about the center, the site of culture as a site of reproduction, of hegemony, of dominance, and places where that dominance could be contested. Stuart Hall left the Centre of Cultural Studies in 1979 to take up a post at the Open University. The move coincided with the birth of Thatcherism, a term coined by Hall himself, and the rise of neoliberalism. In the following years, cultural studies shifted away from that direct political engagement to a more professional engagement with studying popular culture for its own sake. Here's Hall himself describing that era. Cultural studies, um, you know, had this long period when it uh, tried to forget that it had a political edge or political dimension. It went into a you know, splurge of high theory. I'm not against theory, I'm, a, you know, theoretically... I don't believe we can live with, understand things without theoretical concepts. But cultural studies was never an enterprise to produce critical theory, which it kind of became. Much more damaging than that, in its attempt to move away from economic reductionism, it sort of forgot that there was an economy at all. You know, so uh, is, it, is it in a position? It's not in a wonderful position to, uh, to take that job of conjunctural analysis now on. Though some people within cultural studies are because they do understand that the cultural is constitutive of political crisis, and a lot of other people don't. So they're potentially in a position to make a deeper analysis of the present conjuncture than a lot of traditional political scientists or, you know, economic theorists would. But they would have to recover lost ground. They would have to go back to the political a function of cultural studies, political dimension of cultural studies, and they would have to go back and ask themselves, well, if the economy does not determine everything in the last instance, well, what is the role of the economic in the reproduction of material and symbolic life? So they have to ask themselves economic questions. And now the funny thing is that 
you know, historical circumstances impose themselves on how people think. I hear cultural studies people now, you know, talking about the LIBO interest rate and, you know, I mean, talking the language of neoliberal economics, and not talking the language, but trying to understand how the, uh, how the neoliberal global capitalist economy works in ways which I haven't heard cultural studies people talk about the economy for over 20 years. I think there's a kind of return to that. I don't want to see return to economic reductionism, which, as you know, I've never thought explained anything very much. But as Gramsci always said, the economy can never be forgotten. It has to be taken into account. So cultural studies has to find a way, a language of integrating, reintegrating politics, culture and history, as we were trying to do at the very beginning of the project. So how is the work of the Birmingham School and the debates of the 70s and early 80s being built upon by current Marxist thinkers? Here's Steve Edwards again. I think there's a whole, whole series of ways in which um, those debates are being picked up. And the first thing I would want to say, I think, is that the debates of the 70s and the early 80s are, for me, very unfinished. There's a lot of work that we need to do, we need to go back to, and think about what they were doing, and the, the kind of the contradictions, the paradoxes, the problems in their work. I think, you know, that the, the way that the, they interpreted Gramsci and Althusser was, was in many ways very problematic, and that we need to go back and we need to think through what, the, what was going on. The strength of the work that they were doing then, as I've said, is that it had a very directly political impetus in negotiating what hegemony might be and how we might think about culture. Now I think one of the things that's going on immediately is that there's, is that there's, a, there's an engagement with our situation in a series of different ways. I think that, for instance, in my own discipline, which is art history, it's very noticeable that there's a lot of young people in, engaged in that critique, in the critique of contemporary capitalism, in its biopolitics and so forth, but it's very centrally around contemporary art. So one of the things that's happening there is that there's a, is that there's a huge debate taking place internationally, particularly in Northern Europe, I think, around issues of art, capitalism, gender, and, and critique. So there's a lot of work going on there. I know what's I, I know contemporary cultural studies less. I mean, my own engagement with it was in its central formation in the in that period. But what I see at the moment is a lot of um, theoretical impetus, a lot of studies of uh, you know a lot of studies of contemporary capitalism, a lot of work of translation again going on. So one of the key things I think that's happened in recent times that we can talk about in relationship to this debate is to, is, to, is the reengagement with Gramsci, is to think about the way in which Gramsci's um, the way that Gramsci was used in the 70s, which seemed to feed a certain kind of uh, social democratic politics or Euro-communist politics, has been very heavily criticized in, in recent years. I mean, I'm thinking amongst, but only amongst other things, of Peter Thomas's recent book on Gramsci, called Gramscian Moment, which, which you know, reinstates the political and revolutionary dimensions to Gramsci's thought. And I think it's a really important book in terms of that. But not only that, I mean, there's a whole series of books that have recently been published on Gramsci. So Gramsci's again coming to the surface and probably is a slightly less culturalist figure and a slightly more political one. 
I, th I don't think that there's any harm in that. I think that you know contemporary cultural critique could do with again an injection of politics. So one of the things that's going on is a recovery of a lot of those debates, and I think a turning back to um, debates that were unfinished to think again about a kind of grounds, but a groundswell of debate from um, you know right the way across from America into Latin America into Northern Europe and, and Britain. So I think, again, we're seeing a kind of probably less coordinated work, probably more disparate, um, and probably, you know, it, it's yet to coalesce into anything. But I think one of the things that we should certainly recognize is that at the intellectual level, Marxism is resurgent at the moment. It's resurgent in cultural studies. It's resurgent in, in you know, literary theory. It's resurgent in, in a whole series of disciplines, particularly philosophy, political economy, um, politics, international politics, and so forth. So that, the reemergence is uneven, but it's certainly going on. At the beginning of this podcast, we heard Steve Edwards describe Marxism as a profoundly aesthetic philosophy. At times, it can seem as though Marxism only offers a critique of aesthetics. But can it also help claim aesthetics as a mobilising force within the politics of the left? It's important to recognise that there are very different strands within Marxism. Uh, we probably, you know, it might be, make, make some sense to sp speak of Marxisms. But what, you know, so that there's one aspect of, uh, of Marxism which is to be very, which is very anti-aesthetic critique, which is to see um, aesthetics as a, a sort of false um, sublation, a, a sort of false uh, totality or a, a false whole, which creates a, a, a political illusion of um, immediacy, of kind of spontaneity, of um, a kind of world without contradictions. And I'm thinking here of Eagleton's ideology of the aesthetic, which, but he's, he's only one person who's made that critique of what he terms the aesthetic, aesthetic ideology. I think that's one dimension to this. But there's another dimension, I think, which actually sees, sees aesthetics in a very different sense about going back to the original notion of aesthetics as the organization of the senses and sensibility and to think about the ways in which you know, right from the outset, Marx is engaged with those debates and that they've run right the way through Marxism. So I think that one of the problems is that there's a way in which that the, any serious Marxist politics has to be an involvement with those issues of affect and emotion. And I think to some extent we've often, um, you know, relied overly on kind of rationalist argument, on a belief that somehow if you explain people um, how it is, that the scales will fall from their eyes and they'll see the truth, and not and not to understand the way in which what's one of the things that capitalist ideology does really well is mobilise emotion, mobilise affect, and that we need to we need, we have our own ways of doing that. They've always been in our movement, and so. Um, we need, but I think there's been a sort of sense in which that that's a problem for us, and we don't conveniently talk about it. You know, the, the, but we have to confront those issues. I, I brought with me just a, a quotation from Dorothy Thompson on Chartism, which I think is really significant. This is going back to the 1840s. So Dorothy Thompson was a historian of um, Chartism who um, was 
worked at Birmingham, was E.P. Thompson's wife, um, you know, wrote some very, very substantial discussions of um, Chartism. So she wrote, in the towns and villages of Britain, thousands of anonymous men and women organized the Chartist movement. Using traditional forms of processions, carnivals, theatrical performances, camp meetings, sermons and services to put the message across of the six points. Flags, banners, caps of liberty, scarves, sashes and rosettes appeared on public occasions. Slogans from the Bible, from literature and earlier radical movements decorated the banners and placards they carried. Hymns and songs were written and sung. Poems were declaimed. Every aspect of the religious and cultural life of the communities was brought into service to press home the Chartist message. It seems to me that that's, that's aesthetics, that that's one of the dimensions that Marxism and culture has to be about. It's an understanding of the way in which culture is lived and experienced and central to the way in which we understand ourselves and we understand our politics. We can talk about, you know, kind of aesthetics in its, in its high forms in relation to art and literature and music and so forth, but we should also remember, remember with Gramsci and remember with the Chartists, that this is also about lived experience and it's about how we understand our world, how we can test our, the meanings that, that are imposed on us and how we define ourselves in opposition to capital. This episode of Pod Academy was produced and presented by me, Kieran Yates, and made possible by a grant from the Emile and Melbourne Trust. You can find more podcasts and transcripts of our podcasts at our website, www.podacademy.org.